Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijveken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting-edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Why has it taken this long to mainstream the rights of disabled peoples into international development efforts when a full 15% of the world's population has some form of disability? How helpful has the recent wave of organizations that aspire to pay greater attention to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging been for the disabled people's movement? And when disabled people's organizations push for greater integration of people with disabilities in other NGOs, policies, programming, staffing, leadership, and in budgets, what have been the most effective influencing strategies and tactics? This and more in my interview with a pioneer in this area and a winner of many awards, Susan Siegel of Mobility International USA, who's been at it for four decades and is still energized by a combination of optimism and anger. Hello, everybody. This is NGO Soul and Strategy. And today I am interviewing Susan Seigel. Susan, is that how I pronounce your last name? I should have asked you this before. Tell me. Actually, it's more like the bird. It's more like Seigel. Seigel. There you go. Made a mistake right in the beginning. No problem. Susan Seigel, and she is the CEO of Mobility International USA. And I will be introducing Susan right away, and then I'll tell you a little bit uh, listeners about how Susan and I just uh, first met, which is a number of years ago. So Susan, as her, her bio um, tells us, has been a wheelchair rider since the age of 18. She co-founded the Disabled Women's Coalition at the University of California in Berkeley here in the USA, together with Deborah Kaplan. And during her time at Berkeley, she also co-founded a recreational sports program for students with disability. Siegel's, uh, your experiences, Susan, are uh, you traveled a lot. You co-founded then this nonprofit, nonprofit organization, Mobility International USA, together with Barbara Williams back in 1981. And... Your organization runs an exchange program and promotes the inclusion of people with disabilities in international volunteer exchanges. And I think you do even more than that, but you're going to tell us. Susan won a very prestigious uh, Henry Viscardi Achievement Award in 2014 for her work in the disability sector. And even more prestigious, she was the recipient of the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship in 2000. 
and also named an Ashoka Fellow. And for those of you who don't know Ashoka, it's a very well-known organization that um, supports uh, social entrepreneurs. And Susan also served as an editor for the magazine Transitions Abroad. And I got to know Susan a number of years ago in the context of interaction at Interaction Forms. Interaction is the U.S. umbrella organization for INGOs. So we met at the Interaction Forums annually. We've met at CEO retreats and we've met at a couple of women's retreats, right? And I know Susan as a pioneer in the U.S. INGO community on disability rights and you have fought the good fight for as much as four decades. And lastly, a full disclosure on my end, I have a personal connection to disability rights because I have a family member with disabilities. So the, uh, the issue is one that I care about even more because of that. So Susan, welcome to our show. Thank you so much, Tasca. I am so excited to be here. I hope you'll find it a, a, an interesting conversation. I know we will. So the obvious question first, Mobility International USA. Tell us more about its mandate, mission, and also, are you part of a global organization? If there's a USA part, are there other parts? I actually don't know that the, the, the answer to the last question. Okay, sure, Tesca. So Mayusa, as we call it, um, we're a DPO, which means we're run by and for people with disability. And our mandate is to advance disability rights and leadership globally. And we do that, as you mentioned, through international exchange, but we also work very much in the international development space um, mm -hmm. where we work on um, policy, legislation. We do a lot on, as you mentioned, on disabled women's empowerment. Um, we teach at the university here in Oregon, and we also do consulting for international development organizations on inclusion and have done consulting with organizations like uh, MacArthur. So very much on the ground, consulting and running our own programs. And we aren't the only Mayusa, so we are a national office, but we do through our alumni, we have alumni over 2,300 alumni in over 135 countries. Wow, that is a lot. I'm also interested in the fact that you have uh, consulting as, as a kind of a fee-for-service mm -hmm. uh, income stream, which I think is really smart. And the way in which some other organizations who are not yet contemplating might, uh, might want to think about that and might want to learn from you. My understanding, um, Susan, about your leadership development work uh, with such an enormous number of alumni is that you, at least for a while now, and, uh, um, have focused on women leaders, disabled women leaders. I could imagine why you do that, but I want to hear it from your own mouth. Right. Yes. Well, of course, you know, the majority of our programs, if you look at our statistics, are for both men and women. But we are known worldwide for our WILD, which is our Women's Institute on Leadership and Development, because something different happens when disabled women have their own space or have their own program. They, We can really concentrate more on the issues. We know there's more violence against women. There's harder to get jobs, harder to get political participation. And so because of this double discrimination against women, we have always felt that it's important to really build this, you know, 
I'm not going to say pipeline because I've learned that's not the correct word, but um, really a pathway for disabled women globally to be leaders. And now we have our, quote, wild women in over 89 countries. And, you know, Tuska, you know, we could talk about all the double discrimination, but I also like to talk about but disabled women have two things to be proud of. Mm-hmm. They're women and they're disabled women. And so for some women, we you know we work with women in Africa, Asia, that's a whole new concept, being loud, proud, and passionate to be a disabled woman. Mm, I love that you say that. And it's in fact, um, it's something that I want to ask you uh, later on, if we have time, that there are... Um, you know, so often we think about disadvantages, right, and discrimination, but there are all they can be sources of strength and power, right, uh, and pride that uh, that can be tremendous, um, tremendously also attractive to people outside that population. So let's talk a little bit more about disabled people's organizations or DPOs. You already introduced that uh, that acronym. So as a lay person, I have um, I've occasionally worked alongside people who know a lot about DPOs, but I myself have never had the privilege yet to really focus on DPOs. So my my lay observation is that uh, quite a few disabled people's organizations obviously focus on delivering services uh, to people with disabilities and or advocating on behalf of disabled people with local government, national government, and with other um, uh, actors, if you will. But there are also some that see it as their role to influence the behavior, the practices, the mindsets, and the worldviews of mainstream, quote-unquote, NGOs. So NGOs that do not focus in any particular way as such on disabled people. And I'm really interested to dive a little bit into that the influencing of those mainstream NGOs. So what have you as the executive leader and what has Mayusa, um, your organization, what have you learned about what are the best strategies and tactics for that type of influencing work? Right. Yeah, so that's a great question. So yes, a lot of organizations, DPOs, some people call them OPDs, organizations of people with disabilities, are, you know, providing services, counseling or whatever, um, you know, all sorts of different support. But more and more, they're also realizing that one, they want to pass legislation. So if you want to pass legislation, then you've got to start working with civil society and maybe with other international development organizations that are working on elections. Or if you're working on accessibility, again, you might be working with other international organizations who are working on infrastructure. So more and more, I think people with organizations of people with disabilities are realizing to make a systemic change beyond just service delivery, they have to, as we would say, and I know you'll ask me about this, infiltrate the mainstream <laughs> organizations to not only influence them, but also to make sure that everything that they're doing is including disabled people, whether it's climate change, environmental laws. And so, I mean, I think, you know, I think for those of us in the le- working on leadership, you realize that everything is so interconnected and to really to make change, you have to work on many different levels. So, and I know some organizations, international development organizations are always talking about, well, they they need to do an evaluation of, of people with disabilities in their organization 
Well, who better to do the evaluation of that and to find disabled people to recruit than those organizations? So I think there's an ever-changing role for DPOs. Mm. But can we talk a little bit more, Susan, about specifically what strategies and tactics have has your organization and have you found most helpful to influence behavior of mainstream NGOs who did not think it was their role to be an actor for disability rights? Right. The two things that we've done, I think this worked is one is we, as you mentioned, we have this consulting, the excellence in discipline development inclusion. So organizations are learning how do you budget so that you have money for reasonable accommodation. I think a lot of organizations want to make changes, want to include more disabled people, but they just don't have that how-to. Mm-hmm. Or they want to recruit more people with disabilities, but they don't know where they are, how to reach them. Mm-hmm. So for us, it's been doing some one-on-one consulting with organizations. And, you know, just recently when we we hosted our 23 disabled women from 22 different countries and we invited, we had 13 international development organizations come well, what better way to change how people think than to spend two days with disabled women leaders when they're really realizing, oh, yes, we do need to have sign language interpreters if we're going to have more deaf people. And this is how you have an inclusive meeting. And is our website really accessible? But I would say, you know, learning how to budget for inclusion and forming, forming partnerships with either disabled people's organizations or disabled women's organizations That seems to really make a difference because Mm. then it's not just something on a piece of paper. They've met people there. As you know, to make change, you have to have strategy, you have to have intentionality, but you also have to have sometimes personal relationships to get things to happen. Yeah, indeed. No, I could see that that could be very influential. Having said that, it's hard to scale that, right? And there are probably many DPOs like Mayusa, like Mobility International USA, who have taken up similar offerings, right? Such as consulting offers. But how do you scale that to an even bigger level? I'm curious. Right. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was just, just a few hours ago, there was a, a meeting for interaction, as you know, and they had their diversity, equity, and inclusion meeting, and there must have been 40 um, DEI um, program offices from all the big international organizations were there. And And it was very exciting because I think what's happening, I think, to scale up is everyone is scaling up DEI right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are budgeting for a DEI. I mean, this whole every every major organization seemed to have found the money to have a DEI officer, a DEI manager. And as we know, part of DEI is disability. So if all these organizations who are now focusing on DEI will either seek us out or other organizations that are doing consulting, I think that is how it's going to be to scale, to scale it up. But if disability is not part of everybody's DEI strategy, then you're right. I think, you know, we can only affect so many people. So it needs to be in a larger scale. And Tosca, one of the other things that I found amazing is that as we've worked with MacArthur Foundation, who's giving out um, through their Lever for Change um, grants, they ask every person who applies for Lever for Change, one of their grant opportunities, 
to say, how are they going to include disabled people and show us your budget for reasonable mm. accommodation? And you can't say, oh, we don't do that or we're not doing disability. You must show a budget when we would say one to three percent on admin, three to five percent on program. And you must answer that question. And, you know, I can tell you because we talked to some of these organizations, they say, you know, if they didn't ask us the question, we would never have thought about it. So you're saying if funders ask for it on a standard basis, it, it becomes not only our organizations prompted to do it in that moment, but they may over time just make that a default uh, organizational process or system, which, and then mm -hmm. everybody is just uh, going to do it on an everyday basis. Right. So that is an important lever. Right. And, and I think things like USAID, who, you know, Samantha Powers gave us a, um, a beautiful message when we just did our disabled women's programs. I think you're going to see a lot more of show us in your evaluation, show us what you're doing to include people with disabilities. So, um, you know, there's carrots and there's requirements. And uh, I definitely think you're going to need both. You need both. Yeah, makes sense. Since you mentioned the DI context, diversity, equity, and inclusion as a as a kind of a global wave of uh, getting a lot of attention, let me ask you something about that. At face value, and you already indicated that, uh, uh, it's clear that disability is a form of diversity, both cognitive, mental, and physical, uh, and um, physical disabilities. Um, and therefore, there are, as you already indicated, a lot of advantages to riding that wave, if you will. On the other hand, I'm curious, it may sound counterintuitive, but have you found over the last couple of years that there are any downsides to the extent to which uh, disability rights have been integrated or not in the, the global wave on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Because, of course, mm -hmm. you've been, you and those who are with you on this globally have been fighting this good fight for <laughs> four decades. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, for us, when everyone's like, oh, let's do DEI, it's like, well, where were you 40 years ago when <laughs> we're talking about disability inclusion? But I think other people, um, probably people of color and other underrepresented people are thinking too, why, I mean, yes, it's important it's happening now, but this is not a new issue. Um, the only, the only, I don't see any downside. The only thing that I would find frustrating is sometimes if people do not see disability on the same importance as, as, as like, you have to do one before another. I think you've got to do disability. You've got to do LGBTQ. You've got to do people of color. I, I'm hoping that it doesn't get to be, we do one first and then something second and something third. I think it's really important that all of them receive the same priority, um, to mm -hmm. go together. And hopefully there's, um, a win-win. Of course, there's going to be certain times that certain issues are going to take precedence. I can totally understand that, you know, on a case-by-case -case basis. But I sit on the uh, Equity and Inclusion Board for the University of Oregon, an advisory committee, and it's really interesting to see the power of people with representing all different facets of DEI really working, working together. And um, yes, there are some issues that come ahead and some that come less, but 
it's it's a question of they're all equally valued. It's just mm. a question of strategy sometimes. Mm. Mm. So on the whole, it has offered the disability rights community in a, in an additional a set of le- levers and and a big push, an additional push to to promote the issues you're saying. Um, why, when we know, and of course I imagine a lot of people don't know, but that as much as fifteen percent of the world's population is has some form of disability, why? Has it taken this long to start to approach mainstreaming, you think? That is a really good question. And I'm not sure. I'm not baffled always because I feel like some of the organizations that we've done some training with who have now you know, changed their strategy and hired some disabled consultants and, and did things are doing it so quickly and so proficiently that I'm wondering if this intervention had happened to more organizations, why do they don't, why do the, the people don't get on board more? I'm not sure. I do know that maybe sometimes with disability, people have been sort of um, not see, seen it in such a negative way that they've been hesitant to hire someone with a disability or hesitant to, to, to make those strides. Um, I don't know, but I feel like the tides have changed. Mm. I feel that what was once with, you know, oh, you know, we have to think about non-disabled people before we think about disabled people. No one would dare say that anymore to my face. Mm. So I think that, as you said, there is there is a new way of that which has happened in the past is no longer acceptable. Mm-hmm. And I think disability is now being part of that of that new way of thinking. And I also think it's a new generation of young leaders, too. And yeah. I think the young yeah. leaders who are coming up, you know, from teaching at the university, I think they don't have so much as bias, um, maybe growing up with disabled people in the classrooms. Um, it might be a different generation and a different a different way to speak to be a catalyst to speed things up. I yeah. hope so. Yeah. And by the way, I apologize for a bit of the background noise on my end. Um, I, I want to ask you and, and uh, Susan, answer it as much as you want or as little mm-hmm. as you want. How did you sustain your tenacity over those four decades? How did you do that? Well, I think, you know, that I have to reflect. I don't think I ever consciously have to think about it. I think um, I'm a a high energy person and I I think I'm an optimistic person, but I think I'm able to combine optimism with righteous anger. Because mm. I think my, you know, as you probably know me, I mean, I'm very passionate, I'm very angry at discrimination, but I'm able to keep the optimism enough to motivate people to get behind me and to work with me and to do that. And I, I think you you really need that to sustain or, you know, one of the things I always think if, if you're going to do something, if you can do it joyfully or don't do it. So to me, as you know, as long as um, whatever I'm doing that's difficult, I try to do it joyfully, but that does not in any way, you know, take away from the righteous anger of needing to make change in the world. 
Yeah, and I, I have certainly observed you in, in uh, several meetings with leaders of uh, peer organizations where I sensed, and very understandably so, a sense of impatience and frustration around why you had to say the same things over and over again. But, um, right. yeah. And I think also, you know, Tesco, there was an interesting statistic when they did about, you know, how many people with disabilities are involved in the international development community that Interaction did, and it was something like less than 3%. So again, there are so few disabled people leaders in international development. So one of the things I'm all, I, I'm seeing now all these young disabled people getting their master's in international studies, getting their PhDs. Um, you know, I think this idea of me being the only person with who at least self-identifies as a disability activist, I think that will change as more young disabled people are seeing this as a as a profession and it, it will change. Okay, so you are um, you are foreseeing that this will become a much more common feature. Okay, that's that's good. That's enc- encouraging. Now, disabled people's organizations are one example of of what you quite often see, though not always, in the NGO sector, which is single issue organizations. So, uh, NGOs that focus on one population or one um, one issue, for instance, environmental NGOs or um, animal welfare NGOs or housing NGOs, etc. Um, Sometimes single issue NGOs can really obviously um, afford to really focus on, on that one issue. And that means there is an intensity to that, right? And there is an uh, automatic build-in protection against getting too thinly, to spread out uh, to yourself too thinly. Are there downsides to being perceived as a single issue organization by quote-unquote mainstream, whether it's funders, whether it's peer organizations, whether it's governments, whether national or local, etc. Do you ever sense that you are perceived in a different way than an NGO that does, uh, that works on multiple sectors? Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I think, you know, being at least from, a, from our lens of being a DPO, I mean, I would see us as multi-sectored because we're in within the disability, we're in exchange, we're in international development, we're teaching at the university, we do consulting, we do disabled women's training, we do policy and legislation. You know, so I I, I think I I think we're broad within our one sector of being disability. So um, I don't I don't think it, it necessarily um a downside. Though I find it really, I find it really important to have to see how all of them relate to each other, because I, I think no matter, I think that's the the one of the things of leadership is be able to scan all the things that you're doing and see how they relate. Yeah. And um, I would think even with a single sector organization, whether they're working on microcredit or you know environmental rights, within that there are so many sectors. But to, to see how they're related and then to see how to scale up through partnerships, I think, is the key to success. Mm, that's, a, that's a very fair answer. Yeah. Um, I'm also curious where globally you've seen the 
greatest wins when it comes to disability rights. I can think, of course, of, you know, international treaties, UN treaties. I can think about here in America, for instance, the, um, the ADA, the, the, the large, you know, federal level, um, disability, um, um, law and policy that came out of that with some enforceability. But I wonder, I'm particularly curious, Susan, which big advances in disability rights have been clearly um, won by formerly registered NGOs like yours and others that you are in coalition with undoubtedly. And when have you seen examples actually of gains in disability rights that did not come about through formerly registered NGOs with you know, friendly um, partners, etc., in in government and funders, but by disabled citizens who spontaneously, in a more of a social movement type of organic push, um, came to these wins. Can you comment a little bit about those two sides of how big mm-hmm. disability wins come about? Yeah, I think, you know, when I look back at all, what are the really big wins? I think, you know, one of the biggest wins was the Americans with Disabilities Act. And it did come from disabled people from back to know the history of 504 with a spontaneous takeover of the longest takeover of federal building that then later turned into a bigger legislation called the ADA. And the reason why the ADA to me is such a big win is because it has teeth. And to me, any legislation or policy that doesn't have teeth or consequences, in my experience, you can hear about it and people go to conferences about it, but it doesn't change the everyday lives of people with disability. Mm. And so the ADA also has been used as a sort of a blueprint for lots of other organizations, disability organizations in other countries, though of course they modify it to fit into their own political and cultural context. So that to me is is probably one of the biggest wins. And then the other things that I think are happening more globally is also the power of disabled women's organizations that you don't hear so much about. In Armenia, um, one of our, some of our alumni, they not only just started two independent living centers, which is a whole different way of looking at disability in Armenia, but at the same time pushed for policy legislation and they have gotten some things passed. So I think sometimes it's broad coalitions of people, of, of organizations and, and people doing things. And sometimes it could be a small, relatively small disabled women's organization that has very big bowls goals and is just, you know, getting amazing um, traction in a very short amount of time in Armenia. Mm. But I think, um, but again, all of these organizations, I think, you know, should be working in partnerships with other bigger organizations who are also working to improve civil society and human rights in other countries. I think the disability movement is just part of the human rights movement globally. they have to find those lawyers who are working on human rights issues and partner with them when they're trying to get also disability legislation. Yeah. And I'm, I'm now curious, just a kind of a spontaneous follow-up question. So as you know, Susan, there is um, a lot of vocal criticism by Global South founded NGOs and other forms of civil society organization about what they see as continued dominance, um, uh, power hoarding, crowding out, right, of Global South-founded organizations. 
to what extent in the disabled people's rights um, sector is there a similar kind of critique mm-hmm. where um, Global North founded NGOs like Mayusa and others are said you are actually overstaying your welcome or you are you need to get out of the way don't hoard the access to funding we are doing this ourselves and yeah make space for us is that a theme well i think you know one of the things when you you know our name really isn't isn't probably need to change the name to miusa because we're very early on when we started uh disabled people said oh can we be a mobility international you know costa rica or ghana or wherever can we we want to do that and we said no we don't have any offices or any staff in other countries we said start your own organization you know, be your own entity, decide who you want to be, be who you want to be, and then we will partner with you, but you be your own organization. So we, from the very beginning, had no interest of having, you know, still satellites of our organization, so we never did it. So we are, there was never our intent, and I think it was because why should we? So I, I think but now what's so we partner with a lot of our organizations that we work with, but I think it's there's still a long way to go. I think the the DPOs in the global south need to get more funding, need to get bigger grants, need to strengthen their own organization. So to the best that sometimes just like we can't receive large grants because we're a smaller organization, we receive as big as grants as we can, and then we partner with our other, or uh, as much as we can with our alumni and other disability organizations. Um, I do think also there's organizations that are very big and global that do disability work, but they're not run by disabled people. And so I think, you know, if they're doing certain work that nobody else is doing, I think that's fine, but they should never be competing with organizations run by people with disabilities. Mm, that's an interesting, that's a norm, basically, that uh, your, you uh, and your sector are still kind of, at least informally, are pushing for that that should be a norm in the sector. Yeah, and I think, again, I mean, if someone is doing rehab work and with medical doctors, I think that's great. Well, of course, they, you know, not, I don't think DPOs want to do that. But if somebody, you know, if there was a, a competition to do, let's say, capacity building with disability organizations, you would think that you'd want to support disability-run organizations both in the U.S. and abroad. So I think I think everyone is doing, you know, everyone, including ourselves, is doing some reflection about how to, um, you know, how to make this a more just world. The other thing I know that you'll hear a lot about is people talk about everything should be locally led, locally led development. And I think that is, of course, really good. But I think when you look at locally led, if the people on the local level are not if disabled people aren't at that table, they may not be saying let's have let's include disability in all our programs, or they might still have an outdated view of disability. And so locally led is great, but let's be sure that locally led includes disabled people's organizations are at that locally led table as well. Yes, yes, because both public opinion as well as the opinion of of governmental leaders and local funders, et cetera, might still be reflecting a pretty outdated 
perception mm. on what is the agency of those leaders, of those disabled people's leaders. Yeah. Now, you've also talked to me before, Susan, about uh, about profiles of DPO leaders. You have four decades to look back upon. I'm going to ask a dangerous question. I'm going to ask. I you- love it. <laughs> well, I'm just going to ask you to generalize a little bit. Is this, are there a few attributes of disabled people's leaders um, over your decades of experience that have struck you as being different or um, often occurring uh, that in that population that you do not see so much in the leaders of your peer organizations? Right. Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I can speak from my experience, you know, especially working with disabled women leaders, there usually is someone in the person's family or immediate or relative that has pushed back preconceived notions of what is possible. It's the grandmother when everyone said, you know, to the kid, you know, in another country, you can't go to school because there's steps. The grandmother says, yes, you're going if I have to literally pick you up and take your wheelchair up the steps. You know, there's someone in the family, you know, someone had a mental health disability or a psychosocial disability. Somebody said, no, I believe in you. You're going to go to the university. So it just seems that it usually is someone in their immediate family who doesn't believe in preconceived notions of what's possible, who is that person who pushes through because every leader that's at least alive today has had to deal with so much discrimination. Mm. And then how, how did they, how did they overcome that to say, we're not listening to what everybody's saying, we're going to do it anyway. And just, you know, for myself, you know, you know, who became disabled at 18 you know, I probably, no one would, I would hire me. I mean, a person in a wheelchair that many years ago, it was almost impossible to get a job. So when you mentioned, yes, I co-founded two nonprofits, probably the only way I'm here today is if I wanted to reach my highest potential was, you know, starting, co-starting uh, two organizations to do that. So um, again, I'm hoping things have changed now. We're seeing more people with disabilities finally also being hired by mainstream but looking back, it's it's going to take someone who uh, is ready to not go with the status quo. That's really interesting. So somebody, and you say often in the family environment, who acted informally, uh, had, had tremendous confidence in the person and was informally both a sponsor, what I would call a sponsor, somebody who be, sometimes behind closed doors also would, would advocate for the person, but who definitely was mentoring and was just giving fulsome support, right? And mm-hmm. that's how the person was able to to um, blossom and, and come into their full capabilities, as, as mm-hmm. you said. Yeah, too. And, you know, for me, you know, personally, as a, as a person who was brought up non-disabled and became disabled, when I became disabled, I when I started facing discrimination, I was just, like, shocked. Like, what are you thinking? Mm-hmm. And so realizing that you are not the problem, the problem is with everybody else who, who doesn't um, see, see that this is a human rights issue. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, Susan, so if people want to learn more about your amazing four decades of leadership and about Mobility International USA and about the WILD program, which we'll 
definitely provide a link for in the show notes. Where should they go to learn more about you? Great. Well, the best thing to do is to go to our website, which is miusa.org, mobileinternationalusa.org. And again, you know, we give free information for people of all types of disabilities who are interested to study abroad, people from other countries who want to come here. We're funded by the State Department through our National Clearinghouse to do that. Um, where you can see our international development programs. And if you want to get um, some how-to skills and contacts, you know, please look at our EDI program, which is the Excellence in Disability and Development Inclusion. And um, you can contact uh, myself or my assistant, Ashley, and we'd love to tell you more about that. But I just really, Tosca, really want to say that I'm hoping everyone who's listening gets really excited about what is going on. I think, um, you know, there are so many fabulous things that can happen, especially with people in senior leadership really embrace disability inclusion. I mean, the thousands of lives that not only will be enhanced for disabled people, but everybody and everybody. Everybody, so this is such a win-win situation yep. that I yep. feel like all people have to do to get the information and the contacts and I think um, we will create a better world. And that's what we're all about. And that is, and and again, if 15% of the world's population is uh, coming into their full potential, right? Imagine how that is a, a win for everybody on this, this earth, whether you're disabled or not. Um, well, thank you so much, Susan. I have, I know I'm not the first person to say this, uh, but I've always found you inspiring. And I'm really glad that you came to uh, speak with us in our podcast. So thank you for your insights. Well, well thank you, Tasca. Thank you for all you do. It's been so great to reconnect after all these years. After all these years. And it, and it was a while, wasn't it, given COVID? Uh, listeners, if you found this podcast stimulating, then be sure to check out um, some of our other uh, episodes, which you can find uh, on my website, 5oaksconsulting.org. That is the number 5, O-A-K-S, consulting.org. Subscribe to um, my email list and you will always be the first to know about new uh, episodes that are dropped. And also to... Uh, finally mentioned that we are starting registration for a third cohort, a cohort of our course on virtual and hybrid team leadership taking place 25th of September through the 5th of November. Sign up on our dedicated uh, website at teachable.fiveoaks.com and you will find out more. Um, and just to finish up by saying this is Tosca and look forward uh, to spending time with you on NGO Soul and Strategy next time. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. 
or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website and follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.